Very good morning, Amokyo family. Every August, we observe Outreach Month. This is the time when we remember that God sends us out into the world to share His love and His good news. And so that's why I invited Mr. Joseph Chen, the YWAM National Director, to the pulpit the past two Sundays. We are grateful and thankful for his preaching and ministry as he teaches us on a hospitable God, that our love for God must go beyond our Sunday worship services to our love for our neighbours, that everyone we encounter truly is an opportunity for us to be a loving neighbour to them. Today, we observe Witness and Evangelism Sunday as part of Outreach Month. And the Lord has given me a title some months ago. The title is this, That My House May Be Full. This phrase is taken from Luke chapter 14, verse 23. And of course, the here, the, uh, my house here refers to God's house. So let me read God's word to us, Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a few. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Come, let us pray. Lord, we pray. Indeed, you as the hospitable God will teach us afresh what it means to be a hospitable people. Lord, we commit today's sermon into your loving hands. Holy Spirit, take control of my words and speak powerfully and convict our hearts and our spirits. Importantly, empower us to live out your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the context of this parable that we have just heard in Luke chapter 14 is this. If you read the earlier verses, Jesus had gone to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee. So Jesus doesn't just eat with sinners and tax collectors alone. He does eat with the Pharisees too. So you see, God's grace is also open to the Pharisees. But the thing is that the Pharisees had to learn three important lessons. Number one, they had such a rigid understanding of the Sabbath that Jesus had to heal a man. If you read Luke chapter 14, the first few verses, you see this healing account. So Jesus had to heal a man to teach these Pharisees that the true purpose of the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest, is for healing. We rest for our healing. Second, the Pharisees were clamoring for the seats of honor, and Jesus had to teach them a lesson on humility. It's better not to think so highly of yourself at first, you know, and choose a lousier seat only to be promoted later on, rather than choose a glamorous seat only to be disgraced later on when you're demoted. Third, the Pharisees had a preferential treatment for those they knew well. They only treated people they knew well, well. 
And so Jesus had to teach them that God is a generous and radical God, you know, who exercises hospitality in ways that people do not normally imagine. And so Jesus teaches, when you host a meal, don't invite your friends and the rich, those who can repay you. Instead, invite the blind, the lame, the crippled, the outcasts of society. Now, last year during Circuit Breaker, we opened our doors as a church to the homeless. And I love our act of hospitality there. But what most of you don't know is the person behind the larger homeless ministry in Singapore. His name is Abraham Yeo. When he got married in 2019, his wife and him, they initially wanted to hold their wedding in Chinatown, where the homeless people usually congregate. He wanted to bring the wedding so-called to where the people were. Unfortunately, the Chinatown venue was booked on their wedding date. So they did the next best thing. They invited 25 homeless friends to the wedding ceremony. In particular, the couple opted for long tables instead of the usual round tables so that everyone could eat together and mingle together in a community setting. And the couple decided to spend most of their money on a catered buffet and on a carnival for the enjoyment of their guests. And the bride herself kept her spending on her wedding gown and makeup to a minimum. So here we have a modern and local example of someone obeying and living out Jesus' commands to be inviting those who cannot be paid. So you see, church, our hospitality to strangers and people who cannot afford to repay us is the greatest reflection of this hospitable God who generously cares for all of us. So you see, this wedding by Abraham right, and his wife, that's a distinctive wedding. It's distinctive because it's different from the norm. We don't normally do that. That's why it's different and distinctive. You see, at the core of Christianity is the call to be distinct, to be different. And that's the fundamental meaning of what holiness means. Holiness means to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct. So holiness is not isolating oneself from the world. No, holiness is living in the world, but not doing things like the world. Let me say that again. Holiness is living in the world, but not doing things like the world. And so I hope Joseph's sermons and Abraham's example reminds us <coughs> that witness and evangelism is not first of all a technique or a method, whether we know how to use the four spiritual laws or not. Rather, hospitality is the first and greatest way of evangelism. Hospitality is the first and greatest way of evangelism. Right now, of course, due to COVID restrictions, we cannot freely host people unlimited number of guests or meet people freely for meals. But once we can do so, I pray that as a church, we will double up or even triple up our efforts on being radically generous and hospitable in as many settings as possible to as many strangers as possible. <clears throat> I know personally from interactions with all of you that we are an extremely hospitable church. So let's do that. But this time, not just within the family of God, but extending it to the neighborhood, to neighbors, and even to strangers. Let us truly live up to our church team for the year, home with a heart. Now back to our parable. One of those who were at the table with Jesus heard him say, Blessed are those who are repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
And this is when Jesus replied with the enigmatic parable. Many people were invited to the wedding banquet, but they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I just bought a field. The second one said, I bought five yoke of oxen. The last one said, I just got married. Now, the problem is not that we cannot ever buy property, you know, or get possessions or even get married. But in those days, as in our days, wedding banquets are not held last minute. The invitation goes out earlier and these guests would already have been notified and expected, be expected to block those dates out. So for them to make excuses is really to snub the host of the banquet. So again, it's not that these activities are evil or wrong in themselves. The common root problem is putting self-interest above the master's invitation. Look again at the excuses. All three begin with I. I bought a few. I just bought the oxen. I just got married. <clears throat> so the problem is putting self-interest above God's interest. And in the radical act of generosity, the master orders his servant, okay then, go out into the streets and the alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Now pardon this lame joke, but because these excuses were lame, the master decides to invite the truly lame. And then the servant returns and says, but what you have, uh, all that has been done, but there is still more room. And so the master told his servant, go out then to the roads and the country lanes. That means beyond just this town, go out of the town even, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So remember the context. Someone had commented, blessed are the ones who feast in the kingdom of God. But in telling this parable, Jesus is effectively saying that the one who will feast at God's table, at the kingdom of God, are not those who are rich, are not those who have a high social status. You see, in those days, as in our days, only the rich can afford to buy a few, five yoke of oxen, and even plan to get married. So indirectly, Jesus was criticizing the glamour-chasing Pharisees. Instead, Jesus says that those who will feast at God's table are the outcasts, the blind, the lame, the crippled, those who are despised by society. You see, the poor, the homeless, these outcasts in Jesus' days and also in our day will hardly be thinking about buying a property. I interacted with the homeless during those two months. It is not in their mind to try to buy a property. It's just beyond their normal way of life much less be busy trying to own one. And yet, it is precisely this group who will eventually feast at the kingdom of God. Wow, think about that. What a reversal. The great malaise of the typical Singaporean church, and we Methodists, I think we certainly need to hit this warning afresh, is that we have become rich, and we think that we can do church simply through our methods or money. Listen to the repeated teachings and warnings of Scripture. Luke's Gospel says also in chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Notice how Luke puts it, it is not just poor in spirit, like the Beatitudes quoted in Matthew's Gospel. Rather, blessed are you who are poor, financially poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then to the church in Laodicea, found in Revelation 3, Jesus said, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can truly become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And note how Jesus continues in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, these verses so often used for evangelism are actually directed to us who are Christians. And then Jesus continues and concludes in verse 21 in Revelation chapter 3, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. That's a pretty amazing conclusion, eh? to sit on the same throne as Jesus does, as the Father does. And then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, when the Lord first gave me this sermon title, That My House May Be Full, I had imagined a rousing sermon, you know, stirring us to bring as many people to church as possible. And so even when I heard, you know, Joseph Chen record his sermons, I was still pretty excited. I really wanted to link this phrase, that my house may be full with a hospitable God. You see, the two are actually quite easily to be linked, right? It makes complete sense. A hospitable God definitely will desire his house to be full. You see, God is so incredibly generous. He's always willing to share his abundance with people. But as I studied the scriptures in Luke chapter 14, the Holy Spirit took me on a completely different trajectory. And this message is quite difficult to preach, to be honest. Not least because I find myself at the wrong side of the equation as well. Am I willing to be poor in order to follow Jesus? Make no mistake, this passage does deal with material wealth. How do we actually deal with material wealth? And the key question is, am I willing to be poor in order to follow Jesus? Jesus knows it's a very difficult message and that's why he continued in verse 26 of Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't he first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Or if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Verse 31, Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider what is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if he loses his saltiness, how can he be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manual power. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now these are the exact same words quoted in Revelation 3. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Friends, the cost of discipleship is tremendous. To be a true Christian witness is difficult. If any of you think that being a Christian is easy or fashionable, I'm afraid you have believed in the wrong gospel. 
being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus is the hardest thing ever. It can cost us dear familiar relationships. As Jesus says, if we do not hate our family members, we are not worthy to be his disciples. <clears throat> it can cost us all that we possess, all our wealth. So make no mistake, my friends. Jesus wasn't really, you know, just telling us to follow him. It's as if a simple life. No, he's asking a lot of us to follow him. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't just asking us to count the cost as much as he is the one counting the cost. He is the wise builder who knows that his house can only be built by living stones, stones who are willing to lay their lives down for him. Jesus is the king who is looking for a courageous army who will willingly lose their lives to win the war. Above all, Jesus raises so-called the scariest question of all. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now here Jesus wasn't referring to sodium chloride, NaCl, no. David Pawson, my favorite Bible teacher, explains what salt means, and I quote him here. We think, we think of salt either as a flavoring or a preservative. And almost every sermon I've heard on you are the salt of the earth talks about flavoring or preservative. That somehow a little sprinkling of Christians makes the atmosphere sweeter or somehow we manage to be the museum of society. But in Luke's gospel, which we have read earlier, Jesus defines what he means. He says, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no good either for the field or for the manual or downhill, the manual power. And so that tells you what the salt was used for in the ancient world. What is scrapped up from the shores of the Dead Sea is not pure sodium chloride. It is a mixture of various kinds of salts. There are all different kinds of salts there. And one of the main ones is potassium chloride. That's potash. If you are a gardener, you will know that every plant needs three kinds of fertilizer. It needs phosphate to develop the roots. It needs nitrates to develop the leaves. And it needs potash to develop the flowers and the fruit. And so a balanced fertilizer will comp comprise of all three of these salts. And the salt that was scraped up from the Dead Sea was used widely as a fertilizer because there's potash in it. Of course, there were other salts too, magnesium, bromide, and everything else, and naturally, sodium chloride too. But Jesus was thinking about his use as a fertilizer, and that's why he said, on the soil, on the soil. And that same word soil is the same word as earth. Then Jesus mentions dunghill, the manual pao, right? And that word was a reference not to the animal manual, but human dung. So here's Jesus into the backyard. In those days, they didn't have toilet flushes like us. They simply had a heap of dirt at the bottom of the yard. You went and emptied your bowels at the bottom. And then by the side of the dirt was a box full of salt from the Dead Sea. And you would put a handful of that on your dirt, on your excretion. And in fact, that was a disinfectant. It's a disinfectant. A very simple disinfectant to stop the spread of things you didn't want to grow. Now, if you put these two together, they give you a negative and positive influence of salt that promoted the growth of good things that you wanted to grow as a fertilizer and inhibited the spread of bad things you didn't want to grow. Jesus was always using very familiar pictures from ordinary life and using them to illustrate profound truth. And so here we have a very vivid picture 
You are the salt of the soil. You are the people who will stop bad things from growing and spreading. You are the people who will promote the growth of good things. Now that's a very vivid picture. And so we are the salt, not by saying anything and not by doing anything per se, but simply by being totally different from the environment. It's as simple as that. You see, in the kitchen, a sprinkling will do. A little salt in the soup, that's enough. But as a fertilizer or as a disinfectant, you need a considerable amount before the effect shows. In fact, you probably need handfuls in both cases. A little sprinkling on the salt will not be fertilizing the soil at all. And therefore, the very concept of being salt in society demands a certain proportion of the society being Christian, being different, being salt. Now, I want to say here that to be salt, again, doesn't call us to be out of the world, but simply to be different from the world. I recall when I was serving my national service, weekends, night outs were oftentimes when many of my friends and you know superiors, they went clubbing, drinking, trying to bait someone. I was simply being the salt by not joining them. That's all. I didn't stop training with them. Neither did I stop talking to them altogether. But when they did things that I knew weren't pleasing to God, I simply did not participate alongside. That's it. That's just a simple example of what it means to be distinct. You don't have to do something particularly special. You just be yourself as salt. Some examples here. If you are a student and you are equally stressed like the rest of the world are, how are you distinct? If you are in the office and you engage in the same dirty politics as the world does, how are you distinct? If we are always complaining like the rest of Singaporeans, how are we distinct, different as Christians, as the salt of the earth? David Paulson continues, Now how can sodium chloride lose its salty quality? The answer is, it cannot. NaCl will always be NaCl, sodium chloride. It is a physical impossibility. And yet, it must have happened in Jesus' days for him to mention it. He said if the salt loses its flavor, save a flavor, it is no longer good for anything. And men throw it out into the street to be trodden underfoot. Now how can salt lose its savor, its quality? A very simple way, not by ceasing to be sodium chloride, but by being adulterated with other substances. Now a clever salt dealer would scrape up plenty of salt with the salt of sand, sorry, plenty of sand together with the salt from the dead seashores. And so a lot of it really wasn't any kind of salt at all. It was sand. And that's the only way salt can lose its saltiness, by having too much other stuff mixed in to it, and it loses its quality. And any housewife who bought this adulterated salt, you know, or the really half sand, would throw it out of the door into the street, and man will walk it back into the dirt from which he came. So the lesson David Paulson says is pretty obvious. Christians will only influence the world if they are different from it. Let me say that again. Christians will only influence the world if they are different from it. Someone said of the church, the lifeboat should be in the sea, but when the sea gets in the lifeboat, you are in trouble. 
The lifeboat should be in the sea, but when the sea gets into the lifeboat, you are in trouble. And so in fact, our real situation is not that we don't have enough salt, but the salt we have is losing saltiness very rapidly by being adulterated, by having too much of the humanist, secularist, materialistic society in us, getting right among in among the Christians. Because we all know this, the pressure to conform is just too great. And Jesus said, if it does, all it will do is to produce contempt in men. And so the implication of this message, in light of what Jesus was teaching on voluntary poverty, is tremendous. So now we're trying to put all the pieces together here. If we Christians are no different from the world we live in, if we are chasing material blessings as much as our neighbor next door, if we are pampering, enjoying ourselves as Christians as much as our non-Christian family and friends are doing, how will we ever become true witnesses of the power and the grace of the gospel? If we have behaved like the world around us, by focusing on self-interest, just like the tree who make excuses, focusing on ourselves, or we focus on being rich and reputable like the Pharisees, we would have lost our saltiness. Because that's what the world is after. Self-interest, being rich, being reputable. And so as I bring today's message for Witness and Evangelism Sunday to a close, I want to tell us that the Greek word for witness is maturios. From where we get the word martyr, someone who dies for their faith. Same word. To be a witness in the New Testament is for someone to die for their faith. So I hope it broadens our understanding of witness and evangelism. Are we people who are willing to die for our faith? Dying for Jesus is tough, right? We all admit that, especially, you know, uh, if that death is immediate. But maybe what's even tougher is to die to ourselves daily, giving up everything we have, everything that we possess, having nothing until the day God calls us home. Humanly speaking, especially for many of us Singaporeans, this is impossible. Will we voluntarily become poor in order to follow Jesus? No wonder the young rich man, you know, in the other gospel stories, walk away dejected. And that's why the disciples came to Jesus. They were completely puzzled too. How then can one be saved? That was their question to Jesus. Jesus' answer reveals the only way. Jesus said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, Jesus is saying, Voluntary poverty can only be accomplished supernaturally. It is humanly impossible to be willing to give everything up. But supernaturally, with God's power, that is possible. Supernatural, voluntary poverty. This is precisely why and how the early church grew so rapidly. The early church took Jesus' words literally. They didn't think that Jesus was teaching some idealized spiritual principle. They took Jesus' word as he declared, and that's why they sold everything they have and came to a common pool. Those of us who do not give up everything we have, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. They took it literally. 
and they relied completely on the Holy Spirit's power to do so because it's simply not natural. It has to be supernatural. So let us close now. I'm going to close with a dangerous prayer. May it also be the prayer of our hearts. Oh God, we need a completely different mindset, a new way of understanding witness and evangelism that begins with radical and generous hospitality to the point that we are willing to lose out, even lose money in order to win people for the kingdom of God. Oh Lord, we know this is humanly impossible and therefore our plea is for you to pour forth your Holy Spirit afresh upon us. Let us be holy. Let us be distinct. Let us truly be salty by being completely different from the values, the goals and the lifestyle of this world. Oh Lord, we pray, help us not to focus on our self-interest, but be willing to die to ourselves and even to become poor so that we might enjoy the final feast in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now that's a dangerous prayer and a difficult prayer. I myself find it difficult, but nonetheless, let's pray and trust God that God will empower us in our weakness. Now before we screen the class meeting questions, let me just remind us that John Wesley set up the structure of the class meeting with only one criteria. Anyone who desires to flee from the wrath to come may participate in the class meeting. In other words, if our desire is not to enter the kingdom of God, if our desire is not to participate at God's feast, no matter the cost, including giving up our wealth, if we don't see the great need to be holy, distinct and salty, then we will not appreciate the urgency, the purpose behind the class meeting. But all of us who are dead serious, pun intended, dying to ourselves, dead serious about our deep spiritual formation and the absolute need to watch over one another in love so that we can truly escape the wrath to come, that we don't lose our salvation and we really want to be strengthened to face the challenges and temptations of our world, then the class meeting is a lifeboat. So don't miss the forest for the tree. The questions and even the structure, they are not an end to itself. They are simply ways to keep us on the straight and narrow path because we are so serious, deadly serious on being safe. The narrow path of Christian distinctive witness and discipleship. At the end of the day, it still requires all of us, even as I give you these questions, it requires all of us to allow the Holy Spirit to, de- to do a deep work of transformation and renewal in our hearts and minds, that our lives can be transformed by the power of God. And that's when the testimonies will come. We don't have to force it. It will come when the Holy Spirit truly works in our lives. And so the class meeting really is designed to keep us holy, honest, and humble as a community so that we can shine like stars in this dark and depraved world, bearing witness for Jesus Christ every day. And so now I leave you with the class meeting questions for this week. Take care.